Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. I know it wasn't that long ago, being just yesterday, that I was um, on the air uh, just not long ago with you all. So I'm sure many of you are wondering why back on the air a day later. Well, I figured, you know, with the weekend coming up, and for some of you, it's already Saturday, it's already Saturday uh, considering where wherever it is you may live in the world, so I figured, why not get another podcast in, so this way, all of you whom, whom have been uh, ardent listeners to my podcast have something that you all can enjoy uh, listening to over the weekend, as well as uh, going into the start of the coming week. So here we are um, discussing, again, American Tempest, how the Boston Tea Party sparked a revolution by Harlow Giles Unger. And uh, we have really uh, covered a lot of ground in the uh, first two um, uh, podcast segments of this uh, book. Um, You know, yes, we had a prologue, a.k.a. introduction, and then we had um, a very thorough uh, podcast that was done last night. And from the looks of what I've seen in uh, two episodes so far, I've um, gotten 71 plays total and out of the uh, two episodes done uh, combined. So that tells me right there that all of you whom have been listening, as it is, are thirsty for more uh, knowledge behind uh, this movement. And many of you all whom have been listening to this have also come to the senses or realization, I should say, that, hey... Yes, there was a Boston Tea Party movement, but it was one of those movements that just didn't happen overnight. It was a movement that um, was built over time, kind of like how the whole separation from England was something that just didn't happen overnight. It was that was a movement that happened really, in a sense, over the course of a close to a twelve-year span. in the aftermath of the French and Indian Wars' uh, final conclusion. But I think it is also fair to say that even as the French and Indian War, and we will learn this in other podcasts down the road, that even as the French and Indian War was taking place, it's fair to say that um, Parliament, or really the Crown, and her uh, subjects, being in uh, colonial America, a.k.a. the colonists, weren't necessarily on the same page. I think we've kind of already proven that even 20-some years before um, before the French and Indian War breaks out, being in the early 1730s, that Parliament passed that Molasses Act. I don't believe the colonists um, uh, gave their consent to that uh, six-penny uh, pence uh, per uh, gallon uh, tax increase. And I don't believe that uh, New Englanders gave Parliament their uh, full consent when it came to um, eliminating the uh, land bank that Samuel Adams Jr.'s uh, father had uh, gone above and beyond to help uh, those farmers who were uh, cash-strapped. So it is fair to say that that, um, improper representation is going on well before the 1760s. So what are we going to be learning about in this uh, podcast segment? We're going to learn a little bit more about the history of war in colonial America. We're also going to learn about um, how many um, universities there were in colonial America uh, from the mid-17th century up until the start of the 18th century. It's a pretty low number, and I think many of you all might be surprised. 
we're also going to learn about um, how uh, merchants uh, themselves profited in times of war. So, our first lead-off question is going to be the following. What had become a common norm in the colonial American world since 1613? Does anybody know what might have become a common norm in the colonial American world since, since 1613? Well, I, what I find interesting is that, you know, okay, six years earlier, 1607, the English um, established their first uh, settlement in the New World, being what we now know as uh, Jamestown, Virginia. But one of the uh, most common norms in colonial America, starting in 1613, and it's still um, prevalent, being well over 100 years later, is war. How is that possible, folks, that war would be a common norm in colonial, in the colonial American world? Well, let me ask you this. There had to have been more than one nation um, establishing settlements in the New World. Of course, when we think of the country that I often think of who had its uh, greatest impact in the New World was England in 1607, uh, starting in 1607 with the uh, settlement at Jamestown. And of course, we have 1620 when the um, pil the settlers or the pilgrims um, settle in what we now know as uh, Plymouth Rock. But we also have to keep in mind that, um, that the British, or rather I should say the English, the Spanish, and the French all have a stake in the New World, a.k.a. what we, we come to know as uh, colonial America. So is it fair to say that um, as a result of war, you have conflicts as far north as New England and Canada to as, um, and south of Canada and New England, you would have conflicts in the Ohio Valley Conflicts in the Mississippi River region, and conflicts as far south, folks, as the South American coast. Well, which nations um, have the greatest influence in South America? Portugal and Spain. The Spanish have all of the uh, territory in the in the um, western part of. Um, of uh, South America, whereas the Portuguese have the eastern part of South America, most notably Brazil. There was a treaty in 1497 known as the Treaty of Tordesillas that pretty much uh, split up um, east and west boundary lines for Spain and Portugal over um, what, um, how much territory each nation controlled in South America. But of course, I must keep in, must remind myself that before the English made their impact in the New World, the Spanish were already making their presence known, um, especially out west and where we, what we now know is uh, present-day Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, especially um, conquerors like Hernando de Cortez. Um, then, of course, there was um, Tenochtitlan with the Aztec Empire. As significant as those findings were, uh, sadly, uh, disease wiped out the Aztec population. 
you know, we always think of wars, you know, that is European nations going to war with Indian nations. Well, you know, wars were an unfortunate uh, norm between the Indians and the Europeans. What people fail to realize is that disease by far and wide obliterated Indian civilizations far more than warfare. So in other words, Indian civilizations, folks, had no immunity to smallpox, um, yellow fever. They had no immunity um, to any disease that the Europeans brought over with them from the old world into the new world. So just remember that, um, you know, it's one thing to die um, in warfare, but when you die from disease... Sadly, disease is something that you don't have control over. But what we must keep in mind, though, here is that with war being a common uh, theme or a common norm in, the, in uh, the colonial American world since 1613, and yes, you've got conflicts from New England, Canada, the Ohio Valley, Mississippi River region to the South American coast. And for these European nations... They're not just vying for territory, but what are they also vying for? Alliances. Alliances with who, folks? The natives, a.k.a. the Indians. And these alliances evolve for a multitude of personal interests. You know, it's one thing for even that Indian nations themselves went to war within, um, within a greater... Um, tribal community to see which tribes controlled, say, the upper um, hand uh, for the shoreline. Uh, you know, Indian tribes uh, competed with one another for uh, pretty much for bragging rights over an assortment of things. But for Europeans, though, yes, it was one thing to have in a couple of Indian tribes on their side, but what were many of the European, um, European leaders trying to do in, um, in the New World? They were hoping that by having the Indians side with them, that they would uh, take their aggression out on other neighboring Indian tribes to where they would eliminate those tribes and make their, what do you call it, their kingdoms perhaps less um, powerful than they had been prior to European arrival. So it's fair to say, sadly, that what the Europeans are trying to do is they're, over time, they're trying to gradually diminish the influence of the Indian uh, civilizations and the uh, strengths of their existing empires. Well, we forward uh, to the year 1740. That's seven years after uh, Parliament's uh, passage of the Molasses Act. What was going on in uh, colonial America? There were two fronts uh, going on in 1740. Uh, one uh, saw James Oglethorpe, whom was the founder of Georgia. Georgia was the last of the 13 colonies that actually was um, established in 1733, the same year that Parliament passed the um, Molasses Act. Uh, James Oglethorpe and his... Um, delegation that came to what we now know as Georgia established um, Savannah and for James Oglethorpe seven years later he decides to invade Florida well I mean Florida does border Georgia but we also have to keep in mind that in 1740 um, 
what we now know today as the state of Florida was not the same um, size uh, that we know uh, today. In 1740, it's fair to say that Florida would have extended all the way past um, present-day Alabama into what we now know as Louisiana. Uh, Florida, at one time, there was a part of Florida that was known as West Florida. And uh, the, the northwesternmost part of Florida, folks, borders Mobile, Alabama. So does anybody know what uh, city in northwest Florida uh, pretty much uh, touches Mobile, Alabama? Pensacola, Florida. Whereas James Oglethorpe um, went about um, invading Florida, Jonathan Belcher, um, who was a governor of Massachusetts, coordinated an expedition to raid Spanish cities throughout the Caribbean. So think about it, folks. We've got governors in colonial America who are launching their own personal ambitions for fame and glory, all in the name of, um, all in the name of the mother country. England. After all, England, it's fair to say that even in 1740, England is still the mightiest empire in the world. Uh, she'll remain the mightiest empire in the world for some time to come. How did uh, Boston's uh, merchants go about profiting in times of colonial American warfare? You know, people have to profit in some form or, or another, even in a time of war. Is it fair to profit in a time of war? Oh, that's a good ethical question right there. Um, I really can't give an honest answer because in the 17th century, the standards of living and the way people did business is far different than we know in uh, today's 21st century um, advanced uh, technological society. But yes, um, Boston's merchants did profit in times of colonial warfare, but the, the bigger question is, is how did they go about doing it? Well, for uh, starters, uh, some merchants supplied troops with um, basic essential provisions, ranging from salted beef to um, salted pork, or what we might think of as dry cured pork, um, clothing, you know, after all, troops need clothing, regardless of the season, and tents. You know, you've got to think about this, folks. We don't have our own personal rooms, so, you know, soldiers are going to share tents. Believe it or not, uh, some tents, you'll, you might have four to six uh, soldiers sh uh, sharing a tent. You know, not everybody's um, going to have their own personal um, luxuries, but I can't imagine sharing a tent with four to five other men. Is, is, that, is that fair to say that um, four to five men in a tent, is that ripe for uh, spreading disease? I'd say so, yes. But those people didn't know any better back then. They, had to, they obviously had to find a way to survive. They obviously had to, uh, this was the only form of shelter they knew. So, yes, some of... Um, Boston's merchants did supply uh, troops with an assortment of the basic provisions just mentioned. Other uh, merchants went about um, arming their own vessels, that is, having um, cannons, cannons on their vessels, um, 
and other, and besides having um, the necessary arming of vessels, other merchants went about obtaining government licenses. What are government licenses in this case? Or, or they were referred to as letters of marquee. And that's spelled M-A-R-Q-U-E, marquee. What is a letter of marquee? Well, or rather a government license, I should say. By obtaining a government license, you were given permission from your government to seize and destroy an enemy merchant vessel or enemy merchant vessels along the high seas. This is also what's known as privateering. Is privateering, folks, a lucrative uh, profession? Uh, yes, it is. How so? Well, for all um, ships that were seized and destroyed, that is, enemy uh, merchant vessels, the privateers themselves were compensated, not just for attacking the enemy vessels, this also meant keeping the goods that were um, seized on the enemy ship, and it also meant taking the enemy ship as well, which could get sold on the open market. What we might think of in today's time as the perhaps as the black market. So let's just keep in mind when um, privateer ships are out there on the water, they're not just hunting hunting down for one ship they are hunting down for everything that's in sight is it fair to say that even privateers or privateer uh, boats were kind of like the equivalent of um, submarines from world wars one and two where submarines could um, take down um, enemy uh, ships along the waters of the um, atlantic ocean the most famous one that i re recall um was what happened in World War One when a, a German submarine um, sunk the Lusitania. Of course, the commander of the Lusitania had been warned repeatedly not to be navigating in those waters. He was even given the option to have ships follow him, follow the boat, so that so that an enemy would not um, launch a, an attack on the ship. And those were um, tense times too in World War One. Not to get off track, but, you know, think about it, folks. You know, when you're out on the water, especially in the 17th century, you're really not in a safe world. You are basically entering no man's land. There is no United Nations to turn to. Uh, there is no um, international court you can go to um, to compensate for... Um, for whatever monetary sum you're uh, requesting in terms of uh, damage to your ship in international waters. So basically, if your ship gets um, gets seized, then you are pretty much up a creek. I know that doesn't sound right, but that's sadly the truth. Okay, now um, let me ask you all this question. Who is William Shirley? Is he a royal governor? Yes. Is he the royal governor of Massachusetts, Connecticut, or Rhode Island? He's a royal governor of Massachusetts. Whom did he replace? Jonathan Belcher. What did William Shirley do that was, um, that for one was unique, and two, 
It had not been done before until the time he became uh, Massachusetts's royal governor. Well, for one, he took over the governorship in August of 1741. So that's eight years after the Molasses Act has been passed by Parliament. William Shirley goes about setting up the largest military expedition in the colonies. A fleet of roughly 100 vessels would go about transporting roughly 4,000 New England militiamen into Canada. This was done because William Shirley was convinced that Boston's safety, and remember folks, Boston, you know, Boston's an island still, but for being an island, he's very worried about um, enemy ships coming inland into Boston and taking the, the city by surprise. Meaning, um, how do I say it, folks? Meaning, like, you know, say the French. You know, the French uh, could be coming in and um, and uh, plundering the, the coastline to where um, the ships in the Boston in Boston's wharves will become uh, jeopardized. And not just jeopardized, but how about, um, you know, French ships coming in and engaging in their own acts of privateering to where they could seize the ships along the along Boston's wharves. So yes, for uh, Governor William Shirley, he was convinced that Boston's safety d depended heavily upon taking a French fortress at Louisbourg on Cape Breton Island in Nova Scotia. We're not going to get into uh, a great deal of. Uh, of uh, research on this, but it is important to mention what I'm going to mention next because um, it does tie into uh, profiting in a time of war, and the person's name that will be revealed uh, is going to be uh, discussed in other podcasts uh, down the road in this book, and um, and there will be uh, someone whom is connected to this other to this person that will um, have a significant impact. In the years uh, come uh, the road to um, independence from England. So uh, the summer of 1744 saw New Englanders' safety concerns rise in the aftermath of the French and Indian forces, which attacked a British uh, fishing port, being um, the fishing port of of uh, Canso or Canso, spelled C-A-N-S-O. Canso is uh, located in Nova Scotia. And what happened here, folks, was that the, that the French and Indian forces um, took 50 British families uh, prisoners, or what we call, uh, we took they took them hostage. So they pretty much uh, ran over this uh, fishing port village of Canso. And despite the fighting that went on, despite the fighting that took place, and yes, Britain did conquer Louisbourg for a period of time, in the end, the British uh, returned Louisbourg back to the French. I'm sure many of you all are wondering, why did they return it back to the French? That's a, I guess that would be for a whole other um, book series discussion, but um it wasn't so much why the British uh, forces returned Louisbourg back to the French, but if there was one man whom profited heavily from this conflict, whom was that man, folks? Was it um, 
Thomas Hutchinson? Was it Jonathan Belcher? Or was it a man named Thomas Hancock? The answer is choice C, Thomas Hancock. Thomas Hancock was the one that coordinated this expedition to Canada. And it wasn't so much that he coordinated the expedition to Canada from a military standpoint. He coordinated the expedition that, uh, that required the involvement of a plethora of essential provisions ranging from food, clothing, arms, ammunition. You know, it's one thing to coordinate an expedition, but you've also got to have the logistical means and resources to go about uh, supplying the necessary provisions so that an army um, is not only uh, fed properly, but they are clothed properly and also have uh, the necessary amounts of ammunition on them, not just for the short term, but for the long term, because, you know, there's no guarantee that whatever uh, conflict you go into uh, from a military standpoint, that it's going to last, um, you know, 30 to 90 days. You could be fighting for three years at most, so you want to make sure that you have enough adequate equipment and necessary provisions to last you for the long haul. The Louisbourg expedition alone made um, Thomas Hancock's worth, or let alone I should say value, around 100,000 pounds. I'm not sure what that uh, would equate to in, um, in American dollars, but what I do know is that his worth alone being 100,000 pounds more than likely made him Boston's wealthiest man. Well, besides Thomas Hancock, which other uh, family merchants in Boston were just as influential? How about the Hutchinsons and the Olivers? You know, just Justice Peter Oliver, uh, Governor Thomas Hutchinson, the Hutchinsons and the Olivers are related to one another. I mean, you know, Thomas Hutchinson and uh, Justice Peter Oliver are brother-in-laws. So the Hancock, the Hutchinson, and the Oliver families are referred to as the following. The Saints of Boston. You know, when I think of someone who is classified as a saint, that usually means they have performed a multitude of great deeds for their community. You know, the late, um, the late Mother Teresa, who passed away back in the late 1990s, uh, she was a saint. I mean, I, I do know that not long after she passed away, I think uh, that she had been canonized as a saint, and rightfully so, when you consider how much work she had done um, in helping those less fortunate. But for the Hutchinson, the Hancock, and the Oliver families, they are referred to as the Saints of Boston, due to their many generous philanthropical gifts to Boston and her people. You know, there's nothing wrong with, um, with being generous with your money, as long as you're doing it, using your money in the right ways. Um, Thomas Hancock um, gave lots of money to the, um, to one of the, uh, church, to the church he attended in Boston, and, you know, if just so that you know that when I know this from uh, Colonial Williamsburg, that when you go inside Bruton Parish Church, of course, the last time I was inside that church was before uh, the COVID pandemic. Some of the pews uh, were bigger than others inside the church. And the reason for that was because most notably in colonial times, the bigger the pew you had, 
that was a sign of your status in the greater uh, community of Williamsburg. So if you were a Randolph, um, if you were a, a Lee or a, a Custis, it's fair to say that your pew was going to be much bigger than uh, John Smith's. Just uh, an example there of uh, how status can uh, dictate can dictate um, so much in uh, the greater society. What was New England's uh, most popular beverage by the time Parliament enacted the 1733 Molasses Act? I think this is a no-brainer, but I'm just going to mention it again. Uh, the answer is rum. The majority of molasses uh, coming into New England came from where, folks? Did it come from the um, British West Indies or from the French and uh, Spanish sugar islands of the Caribbean? The majority of the molasses came from uh, the French and Spanish sugar islands of the Caribbean. And why, why so, folks? Well, molasses from these islands was less costlier to produce, or rather I should say it was cheaper to produce, unlike from the British West Indies, where it was 25 to 40 percent higher. Now, how many distilleries are there in Massachusetts uh, by... Um, I'd say either in the 1730s or going into the 1740s. Uh, how many? Does anybody want to take a guess? Is it um, 40 distilleries? Is it 60 or 100? Answer is choice B, 60 distilleries. So you got 60 distilleries in Massachusetts, folks. How many millions of gallons of rum are produced a year? Your choices are the following. Is it 5 million gallons of rum? Is it 2.7? Or is it a million? Uh, the answer is choice B, 2.7 million gallons of rum a year. And as, and as a result of this, um, these uh, the 60 uh, distilleries in Massachusetts, the employees and the uh, head honchos uh, who ran the uh, distilleries were taking in a million gallons of molasses yearly whereas they only took about 30,000 gallons from the British West Indies. So that means, folks, that, you know, if the Massachusetts distillers are taking in about a million gallons of molasses yearly, that means, and 30,000 is only coming from the British West Indies, the math is, it's simple, uh, about 970,000 gallons of molasses is coming from the French and Spanish sugar islands in the Caribbean. So you can see just how lopsided this is. Why spend your money with the mother country if you know that it's going to um, cost her more to um, produce molasses at much higher rates that will um, drive down the costs of what your of how much your commodity is worth because you know after all you want to enjoy or reap the fruits of the uh, of your labor but at the same time you don't want to um, have to um, pay out more in taxes and get little in return besides distillers were other New England consumers and businesses impacted by the molasses act Yes, people from sailors, coopers, merchants, 
tavern keepers to wine shops were all negatively impacted by the new legislation. Well, you know, think about it, folks. Look at the tavern keepers. You know, they have to run a tavern. They've got to have beverages to, to provide for their guests. You know, water's not safe to drink. You know, your options are limited. I mean, you, you can provide your guests with beer, uh, punch, hard cider. But what are most tavern goers going to really like more than anything else? A nice glass of rum. So if, if what Parliament is already wanting to um, enforce on the colonists, being that six penny pence per um, gallon per pound, or per gallon, rather, I should say, if that's um, if that's um, driving up, if that's going to drive up the costs of um, production of rum in uh, the new world, then how can um, how can business be profitable? It, it can't. If you've got, it's like that old saying: if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, that's pretty much what we're looking at here, folks. With in the eyes of the uh, colonists. They've got something good going. Yes, they know that they are probably guilty of accepting smuggled goods from uh, from the Dutch. But you know what? If you haven't been caught now, why give it up? You know, I'm not saying that it's right to cheat the system, but you know, why, why do you want to pay for something that's going to cost you more, but at the same time you never consented you never gave your blessing on it. In other words, there was there was no proper consent on the right of a Parliament to tax her subjects when they did not when they can say in return that they didn't send anyone from their own homeland three thousand miles away to speak on their behalf. However, uh, there is something I should point out here that while yes. Um, Many uh, consumers and businesses, although, yes, were impacted by the Molasses Act in a negative manner, there were physicians to ministers whom supported the Molasses Act in colonial America. I could see how um, physicians and ministers would have uh, supported this um, act. For one, um, the Molasses Act alone um, did in the eyes of the physicians and ministers, it, uh, they pointed out the dangers to the physical and moral health being rum's dangers. You know, think about it. rum's an alcoholic beverage, alcoholic beverage. And we have to remember in the 18th century, there are no AA treatment centers for people who we would, you know, consider to be alcoholics. And there there were people in colonial days, folks, who did uh, drink heavily to the point where, in some instances, they um, might have abandoned their families. Um, I do know that uh, one of John Adams's sons, his name was Charles Adams, Charles um, had abandoned his family on more than one, one occasion, and it had to do with drinking. He drank himself so badly to the point where uh, John Adams uh, confronted him about it and finally had just said to his son, you know, there's nothing to forgive. Sadly, you have been warned of your behavior. You've been 
you were told to you know do something about it and you didn't do anything about it i do know this much uh not to get off track here but while we're talking about this with the physicians and the ministers uh whom whom actually support the molasses act i do know that in uh, colonial virginia or rather i should say for virginia in colonial Amer american times that if an individual had um, what we now know as a problem with alcoholism, the first uh, attempt um, to get that individual on the right track was for uh, him or her to meet directly with the um, Anglican minister. Remember, folks, Virginia is affiliated at this time with the Church of England, a.k.a. the Anglican Church. So you met one-on-one -on -one with your minister. That might as well have been the equivalent of an AA uh, counselor. If for some reason that didn't work, the next uh, line of punishment was to send you to the pillory where you would spend a day and people would torment you. They would look at you. And I'm sure there would be a notice stating that um, Mr. Jones had. Um, Mr. Jones is in the pillory because he has been abusing uh, alcohol. Well, if Mr. Jones didn't learn his lesson the second go around, uh, the third time he would have been dismissed from the community altogether. So for the physicians and the ministers, I could see how they are very, very uh, worried about what rum itself not only can do to someone's health, but how it can destroy a family. If that individual is so dependent upon alcohol to where it um, takes away their ability to to reason properly as well as to uh, have any kind of a proper meaningful uh, relationship with their loved one as well as with um, other members of the greater community. So for physicians and ministers, they, uh, they turned instead to the benefits behind drinking tea. And over time, more and more people are starting to drink tea. They are finding that tea is a better choice than rum and they are also finding it to be a great beverage to have when dealing with a uh, fever, a headache, a chill. You know what? If you've got something that can remedy a problem, why not keep using it? Well, for those of us who for those of you who like to drink rum, where would shippers unload their cargo? a.k.a. rum, when arriving onto New England's waters. Do you think they arrived right into the heart of Boston's wharves, or do you think they arrived along a remote stretch of the coastline? I'd say choice B, arriving along remote stretches of coastline. Why the coastline? Because the coastline offers a better... Um, source of protection, and the chances of getting caught from customs officials were slim to none. The coastline also ensured that shippers remained duty-free, a.k.a. not having to pay any taxes. Think about it, folks. Your customs officials are going to be right in the heart of Boston's wharves, because that's where the ships are coming and going. Why would anybody go out along the, um, the coastline I mean, yes, it might be dangerous for a ship to try unloading along the coastline, but ships did it. And you know what? 
more power to them if they didn't want to get caught smuggling. Did Massachusetts Governor Jonathan Belcher support the Molasses Act? No. <laughs> and during his governorship, uh, New England merchants took in one and a half million gallons of molasses per year, dis despite not having paid the necessary amounts of money per duties, being taxes. So here we have a governor. You know, he's supposed to set a good example for the people. But yet he's... Um, doing the opposite, and that he is encouraging New England merchants to not uh, support the Molasses Act, which on one hand is totally understandable because this is the first time that Parliament has enacted legislation that, um, with the intent of uh, curtailing um, growth on an industry. But yet he's also telling the people that, okay, while we don't have to like the fact that Parliament is cur trying to curtail the growth on the uh, rum industry, it's also okay to cheat Parliament out and not have to pay uh, the necessary amount of money per duties. This could be a good example right here of where, um, in today's time, you know, Jonathan Belcher were alive and this was going on, he would... I'm, I'm sure it's fair to say that he would be have been indicted on a um, handful of uh, criminal charges. Prior to uh, 1733, um, prior to the 1733 Molasses Act, uh, Parliament had never attempted to place taxes on her subjects, being the colonies or the colonists. But for Boston's merchants, any duty, aka tax, regardless of size represented seizure of their personal private property to infringing, or rather I should say encroachment, of individual or personal freedoms. Well, you know, it, think about like what James Otis Jr.'s case was uh, when he was representing a handful of merchants whom had been accused of smuggling uh, goods into America. What was James Otis's big rally cry? with regards to writs of assistance, and that there had to be sufficient probable cause to search a man's uh, property, but at the same time, a man's right to his personal property could not be uh, confiscated without his consent. Well, in the eyes of Parliament, they are obviously interpreting that differently, and that if a man did bring smuggled goods into um, America, then he can automatically have his property, that is his personal private property, uh, taken from him. So, yes, for Boston's merchants, regardless of the tax that is imposed upon them, this is an encroachment of their personal freedoms. Taxes now have become a central topic of debate behind a man's direct relationship to his government above, a.k.a. mother country, England, the crown, parliament. Yeah, you know, it's one thing to have local taxes, but these taxes that are coming 3,000 miles away, yeah, that is kind of a um, direct violation of... Um, of uh, improper, not only of just improper representation, but a direct violation of the 
overall um, consent protocols that um, that we would hope that we would have hoped that uh, Parliament would have abided by, but obviously Parliament, as I mentioned from last night's podcast, Parliament to me now has become a crab in a barrel by curtailing uh, growth on an industry. That means right there that Parliament doesn't want to see her subjects overseas do well. And it's not just do well, but I think the reason for this um, is because Parliament wants to um, stick it to the people of New England by saying, hey, look, we know what you've been doing for some time. That is smuggling goods. We don't have a problem with your industry. We just want you to abide by our set of rules and and." and pay our tax and pay taxes from us. You know, in other words, yes, we may um, pr uh, produce the uh, rum at a much higher rate, but your ties are to king and country. So because your ties are to king and country, the duties paid upon the rum will come from us. In other words, they've had it with the um, wishy-washiness of the smuggled goods that are still coming in and out of... Um, of uh, Boston's wharves, or most notably uh, her coastline. You know, uh, did um, prominent Bostonian families like the Hutchinsons and the Olivers attend college in Massachusetts? They sure did. They would have attended, um, some people would say Harvard, but I've made it a priority to say Harvard. If you're a New Englander, of course, I'm not a New Englander, but if I was, I'd make sure to say Harvard. So, yes, the Olivers and the Hutchinson families attended Harvard, being America's oldest collegiate university that dated back to 1636. That's just a hundred, shy of a hundred years before George Washington was born, and almost a hundred years um, prior to when uh, John Adams, Paul Revere, and uh, John Hancock were born. Harvard was founded as a divinity school, aka ministry theology, but come late 17th century, the school broadened its studies to where mercantilism was included. So it's fair to say that even in the 17th century, a collegiate university like Harvard had to find a way to reinvent itself as the, as the sign of the times were changing. You know, in today's fast-paced 21st century world, you know, change comes left and right to where we don't really have the time like we used to before to really just value the change that comes because what happens today might not be the same thing a year from now. But in uh, the 17th century, yes, um, a collegiate institution like Harvard did find uh, a way to go about reinventing itself as more than just a divinity school. One thing I found interesting with Harvard is that when the incoming freshmen came to um, this uh, university, how did they refer, how did they address the upperclassmen students? They called the upperclassmen students or fellows as sir. Well, think about this. The upperclassmen might as well be the equivalent of your elders. They may still be in college, but they have at least two or three more years um, tops on you. So if that's the case, you need to address them as if they were 
as if they were the equivalent of your um, immediate family members. After all, is it fair to say that even incoming freshmen are being watched? Yes, and they are being watched by their fellow upperclassmen. Sir Thomas Jones, uh, Sir John Smith. This is all, this might be the earliest version of uh, George Washington's rules of civility or what we call proper etiquette. Besides Harvard, by 1701, only two other colleges in colonial America exist. And what are those two colleges, folks? There's another one in New England, um, a state that borders Massachusetts, being Connecticut, uh, Yale University, which was founded in 1701. And then to the south in Virginia, the College of William and Mary. Like Harvard, the College of William and Mary and Yale were created as divinity schools. William and Mary was affiliated with the Church of England, a.k.a. the Anglican Church. Which European nation claimed uh, territory west of the Appalachian Mountains going into 1754? So we've taken quite a leap here, folks, from 1740 now to 1754. Let me ask you this. Who's the king of England in 1754? Is it King George III or is it his grandfather, George II? The answer is choice B, George II. So which European nation has claimed territory west of the Appalachian Mountains going into 1754? England. The territory west of the Appalachians is known as the Ohio country. And let's keep in mind, folks, that at one time, Virginia went into what we now know as present-day Ohio, present-day West Virginia. After all, let's keep, let's keep reminding ourselves of this. When the English first came to what we now know as present-day Jamestown in 1607, they were truly convinced that where they had um, set foot on, um, and they named Virginia after, the, um, after Queen Elizabeth um, I, who was the uh, Virgin Queen, because she had never married, but they truly thought that uh, Virginia went all the way to the Pacific Ocean. If that's the case, then Virginia obviously would have had to have gone through Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, what we now know as the, that uh, infamous Northwest Territory. However, the French are also claiming a stake in the Ohio Territory as their own rightful settlement. Do I sense a, a potential conflict coming here soon, folks? What 21-year-old lieutenant colonel from Virginia got assigned to lead a force of militiamen with the intent on maintaining Britain's claims to territory at the entry point of the Ohio River, which borders into the confluences where the Allegheny and the Monongahela Rivers met? What 21-year-old lieutenant colonel from Virginia, folks? Would the name George Washington come as a surprise? Absolutely not. After all, folks, George Washington has been uh, doing a lot of work leading up to getting the position of lieutenant colonel. He has been a surveyor for the Fairfax family. He was a surveyor for uh, Lord Fairfax, for whom Fairfax County is named after. Matter of fact, George Washington even surveyed um, Natural Bridge. For those of you who've been to Natural Bridge, Virginia, 
you can actually find his uh, signature, his initials, his actual initials carved on um, the famous uh, rock that is um, that goes high up. Um, but you can actually see his initials carved. If you haven't been to Natural Bridge, it's uh, not far from Lexington in the Shenandoah Valley. Um, it's considered to be one of the uh, natural wonders of the world. And uh, Thomas Jefferson himself, not to get far ahead of the game, but uh, Thomas Jefferson himself uh, bought Natural Bridge from King George III in 1770. Um, they say that he bought uh, King George bought uh, Natural Bridge from King George III in the amount of like something like 20 shillings. Um, I'm not sure what that comes out to in American dollars, but that's how much he was willing to buy uh, Natural Bridge from King George III from for. But yes, anyways, George Washington has a has done a lot of surveying, and so with his experience as a surveyor, um, that leads him eventually to the rank of lieutenant colonel. With the um, who with the rank of lieutenant colonel for the um, militia group that he's uh, in charge of uh, commanding. May twenty seventh, uh, seventeen fifty four, seventeen May twenty seventh of seventeen fifty four saw Lieutenant Colonel Washington along with forty troops, in the Mingo Indian Nation, and the um, Mingo Indian Nation is um, inhabited what we now know as present day West Virginia because there is a place in West Virginia called Mingo, West Virginia, uh, down in the southern part of the state. But for Lieutenant Colonel Washington, he's got 40 troops and a handful of Mingo Indian Nation warriors on his side. They do the unthinkable by attacking a French party out of nowhere in a time of peace. These unintended actions resulted in 10 Frenchmen's deaths, and the death of 10 Frenchmen. The incident alone sparked the flames for war on the frontier a.k.a. the French and Indian War. So the earliest signs of war have now been sparked amongst the British and the French. And we are now going to um, be ready. We're now going to see a world war on the colonial American frontier. So when I'm on the air again next time with you all, we're going to learn more about the French and Indian War and how the merchants in New England um, are impacted by this war. It's not so much a war between Britain and France, but it's really a war between Britain and her subjects against the French and the Indians. But it's also going to be one of those wars that in the aftermath of the war, will there still be an alliance between Britain and her subjects, a.k.a. the 13 colonies? Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and thank you again for always as listening. Um, you guys are the best. Uh, keep up the work with uh, listening to the podcasts um, and keep getting the word out. Um, I hope all of you have a good weekend wherever you may live, whether it's in the United States or elsewhere around the world. But thank you again uh, for listening. And uh, when I'm on the air again next, I look forward to sharing with you all more information on Harlow Giles Unger's American Tempest, How the Boston Tea Party Sparked a Revolution. Take care and stay safe.